Hi there, my name is Mohamed and I'm the host of the Reconfigured Podcast, a show that explores the intersection of technology, culture, and society. We bring professionals to talk about their extended experience or discuss about a specific topic that might interest the audience. All of our episodes are available for free with no cost to the general public. Just a quick reminder that we are always on the lookout for interesting guests who can share their unique perspective on the topics we cover, or you can pitch in in a new topic to discuss on the pod. Just reach out to us on social media or apply to our available opportunities posted on Polywork. So welcome to the show. Today I'm with Jillian. Jillian, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, thanks for having me. My name is Jillian Funes. I'm a technical product manager at Canopy, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. So you currently work as a technical product manager at Canopy Servicing. Would you like to talk about Canopy and what they offer? Yeah, so Canopy is a Series A fintech company. They do the computation engine and uh, system of record behind different lending and credit programs. Pretty flexible, so any credit or lending program that you want to uh, support, we can pretty much support um, through, the, we do all of the computation, the interest calculations, and like I said, the system record. So essentially the, the ledger that powers everything. And we kind of position ourselves as the core Lego to your lending or credit business and integrate in with all the other, um, let's say third party um, systems that you need to power your entire program and business. So as a lending system, we're talking about if I want to issue, let's say, loans as an example. Exactly. So if you want to um, offer installment loans, if you want to do buy now, pay later, if you want to get, we support credit, uh, charge card programs, uh, like I said, pretty flexible. So um, the yeah, that core ledgering piece behind any type of credit lending that you want to offer. So you're, tech, you're basically a technical product manager at Canopy. What is the role of a technical product manager in your perspective? So the product role is interesting in the industry because it's so nuanced between companies. Um, I would say from the 10,000 foot view of like what is a technical product manager, it's our job to deeply understand the customer pain points and also understand the goals and strategy of the business and make sure that at the end of the day, what we're building meets both of those needs. There's of course a lot more that goes into it, but at, at, at the very core of it, it's, it's un ensuring that the products and software that we build meet both the customer and the business needs at the same time. So you sit between the customer and you sit between the company that's going to develop the solution. Exactly. In between. Yep. So what is the flow that you follow to take a product from planning to development? So usually there's a phase where I would get the requirements from a client and I have a team that has to develop them. There has to be a flow that the technical product manager has to go with. Would you like to talk more about this? Sure. Yeah. And it really depends on where the feature product you're building, where that came from. So, you, you know, you mentioned if you get the requirements from a client, that's one way that a project or a product gets kicked off. But I'd even step back uh, a step further and look at where that's coming from. So not everything we build comes from a client, could be internal idea generation. Um, so really, I started that idea generation phase, figuring out where 
it came from and um I guess it's this. So that can come from ideas from the client that could come from internal ideas that can come from um, like actual like bug issues that were found or like hard requirements from a client could come from prospective clients. Um, so kind of consolidating all of those together and looking at them, understanding what the, the core root problem that each idea is trying to solve refining that more deeply. So what's the problem? Who's who's the end user of that problem? Who are we actually solving for? So even though we're a B2B company, the end user that we're serving could be their end user. It could be different personas within their company. So making sure we understand the audience that we're serving um, for that particular feature or product. Um, once we have that looking at all right, how, how could we actually solve this? Is this a, you know, kind of get a finger in the air estimate of like, is this a giant project? Is this a, a smaller thing? Um, if it's a really large project, thinking about how we could potentially run experiments or prototypes around it to ensure that we have the validation we need that this is actually something worth exploring. Um, should that not be like a contractual obligation that we have with a client, of course, uh, then we actually just need to go ahead and um, build it. But if these are things that we have internal conviction around, then making sure we actually have uh, validation and evidence behind that this is something that our clients are looking for and an actual problem that they need solved. Um, once we kind of have all of that, like roughly down on paper and have clarity in our thoughts behind it, um, I like to get everything in our backlog and kind of groom it and prioritize it that way. Uh, we personally right now use the RISE framework, which is pretty common in product management. Um, looking at the reach, impact, confidence, and effort that would go into a particular product or feature, um, prioritizing it amongst the rest of the backlog. Um, should it bubble up to the top and we have conviction around actually fully building it and going after it, then we actually start the development process. and um, once the development process kicks off, product's role there is really to work with the design team and the engineering team to define what the end result is specifically going to look like. What are the requirements? What are the scope? Uh, scope is a huge one. So, you know, some of the things we're building might be brand new products and, you know, really large projects. So how can we ensure that we don't get runaway scope, this goes on forever, that we're actually producing things of value incrementally. Uh, so I think that is um, a big role of product in like the development phase. Um, and then there, even after we are like going into launch and we're like, okay, this is actually built. Um, I work closely with the marketing team, the sales team, our client delivery team, to uh, get comms out, make sure the product's known. I do a lot of the documentation. I build the demos for it. Um, and then also doing monitoring the metrics and the usage and um, bugs that come in, iterating on the process, understanding how we can further refine it and build it and make it more useful. So most of the, a lot of the work I would say is very upfront in that planning, refining, building out the roadmap and the strategy. but product's role really extends all the way through launch and beyond. So 
So let me just recap from this. So let's sure. say for an example, you might get an idea for something internally inside the company, or maybe a client might come up and say like, hey, maybe if this can be done easier, or I would recommend doing X. Mm -hmm. So you would assess if this idea is an applicable idea that can be turned into a product or a subservice. You would do some research about it. And exactly. Then you would assess. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If it's coming in from a client, it's a little bit different. So you kind of have to use your um, judgment. It depends on the s exact situation. Is this something that they are asking for because they're like, hey, this would be really nice. I wish you had this. Or is this like, hey, we can't support our business without this feature. Like we literally cannot run our business the way it needs to be run without it. Um, once we understand that, it's it helps prioritize the feature if this is just a nice to have or a must have. Um, but also, it's common for people. It's, I, I think it's just our default to try and instantly go to the solution of, hey, I need a, a button that does X, Y, Z. Um, it's also product's role to back it up a step and kind of question why it's needed. So understanding the use case behind it. Uh, a lot of times what's being asked for is more of a surface level ask, whereas if you kind of dig, dig and peel back the layers of the onion and you get to that root problem, like, okay, so I understand you wanted this button that does X, Y, Z. But it sounds like the real problem that you're trying to solve here is, you know, whatever the, the problem is, like, I, I think maybe a better solution could be this and kind of working with them on it, um, again, depending on the scenario and, and the use case, but um, we don't support only one customer. So again, on product to ensure that whatever we're building doesn't solve for just one person, that it solves for that client's need, it solves it in a way that can also be utilized by other clients and also furthers um, the strength of the platform and the, the business goals at the end of the day. Also, uh, with previous guests that I've got them on the show, some of them even rely on developer advocates to get, let's say, some inputs from software developers and some companies, and they would assess them based on if this is something that they need to add into a roadmap or into the product line, since the developer or the people who are on the fields using the product know much more of what they actually do need sometimes. They would come up and tell you like, hey, we faced these issues. Uh, maybe if we can do this kind of solution from a developer perspective and they would just ship it as a product sometimes. Yeah, I work really closely with our development team. Um, I didn't mention it in the beginning, but I am a product manager now. But the way I got into technical product management is I was a software developer for nine years prior to making the move into product. So um, I, I do feel like I still carry that perspective with me. And I have um, strong conviction that engineering should be part of those decisions because kind of like you said, no one knows our system better than they do. So working with them on the solution that we provide, um, maybe they have different ideas or maybe they can give input on how feasible or not feasible something is. You know, there are times that I'll bring something to them like, hey, here's the problem. Let's work together on the solution. I usually come with like, hey, here's kind of what I'm thinking, but I really want your input. And they'll come back with like, 
yeah, that makes sense, but we can actually do it this other way and it's going to be way easier and it's going to strengthen the system for XYZ reasons. So totally agree there that um, software developers and engineers should be um, closely coupled and collaborative on that process. But also the thing, you mentioned that you've sometimes write things in the backlog and communicate with the developer with the developers. But usually this is something that a project manager would do. Like, uh, because there's some confusion between product management and project management in the sense that a product manager might handle the tasks of a project manager, sometimes vice versa. Mm -hmm. But would you like to shed more about this? What's the difference between them to clarify? Yeah, and I think I'm actually a good person to ask because my master's degree is in project management. Um, oddly enough, I finished that degree and decided that was not at all something I was interested in, but a uh, good uh, experience and knowledge nonetheless. Um, but to your point, it is very, again, nuanced between companies. Um, some companies do have full specific project management roles, even full departments. Um, a lot of times product does pick up that slack if that doesn't exist. Uh, so in my case, I do also do quite a bit of project management. Um, we don't have a, a dedicated project manager on each team. So that does kind of fall on project or on product to ensure that um, the actual project is laid out. And when we're talking about what is the actual difference between them, you know, I kind of talked about already what product does and the way project management differs there is um, they really get involved at the point that we've decided we're going to build something. So product is figuring out like the why and the what we're going to build and the roadmap and the strategy and what it's going to include. And then we get to the point, it's like, okay, we have conviction. We're going to actually build this thing. Let's build out the project plan behind it. And so the project manager's role is really to ensure that um, once we've decided to pursue this, that it's delivered on time and on budget and um, it's kept on track. So, What I would see it is like, let's say, for example, what I, the way that I see the difference between project management and product manager is that if you want to get the idea of what kind of product you want to build with the roadmap and how things will go, you would talk with the product manager. But if you want to handle people and how they're going to dedicate their tasks, you would set it off for a project manager because sometimes the product manager might have some responsibilities that he has to do that might take his time to come up and manage people. So it's just easier to offset this management of people to someone else and just focus on the product. It definitely makes it easier. It is um, hard at times to split that role. So if you can offload that to a project manager, I don't think you necessarily need one per project. You know, you can have a project manager that's managing across multiple projects at once, but yeah, definitely offsetting that responsibility frees up your headspace. One of the reasons I personally didn't align closely with project management, although I found it valuable to have that knowledge and experience was there's very little creativity, in my opinion, that goes into project management. It's more of like, you know, just kind of tedious organization, making sure things are moving along as expected, whereas um, in product, you really need to have more of that creative headspace. And so when you're kind of bogged down by like the tedious monotony of project management, it makes it a little bit harder to do the context switching 
between that role and having like a more creative headspace that's needed for great product management. So if you can offset that, absolutely. But um, that's, you know, a little bit more of a luxury that not every company can um, offer. So sometimes you kind of kind of play both roles. Also, there's one issue is that if you have a project manager who isn't, let's say, technical at some level, he might, let's say, approve certain tasks or dedicate time for certain tasks that are not priority-wise, and the product might get delayed a little bit. So the problem with also offsetting this uh, delegation is that you lose certain control of how things work at a certain level. So the product manager might have this idea of, okay, the product should go like this. The project manager might come up and say like, okay, I'm going to dedicate this task rather than dedicating, let's say, another task that might to you be more important. Yeah, I I totally see what you're saying there. Um, I think it depends, again, on the role and the team and the whole dynamics of the company. Uh, if you don't come into the role with that technical background, I think you just need to lean a little bit more heavily on your engineering team and be more collaborative with them. Um, I hope that my background in engineering and you know being that technical product manager, um, I have a more foundational understanding of like how systems and generally how things work, even if I'm not in the code every single day. Um, I can still make those rough estimates. Like I understand how this works and generally these types of things take this long and this is generally possible versus this is not possible. So my hope is that having that background that I am able to take a little bit off of my engineering team, but I still work really closely with them. Whereas if you don't come into it with that background, you need to lean a little bit more heavily on them. Um, the other thing I've found to be really useful of having that technical background is you can just be a little bit more independent and have a little bit more impact, especially when it comes to um, working at a primarily software based company, a tech company, as opposed to, you know, there's product managers at non-tech companies where that's not really applicable. It's going to be fine without it. But um, as a technical product manager, it's been really valuable to have that background to, you know, I'm very well experienced in SQL. So being able to utilize my SQL background to run monitoring and analytics and Obviously, like I said, I was a software engineer for quite a few years, so um, I've also leaned on that to build out different prototypes and experiments and low-code options to, you know, validate things out or just get some internal tools going. Um, again, trying to take some of that load off the the engineering team and get things out the door a little bit faster. So I'm going to shift to a different question, which is, there are product managers out there that try their best to manage and ship a software project from idea to production. But there's a good portion of those product managers that don't come from technical backgrounds. Hence, they might lack certain things that a software developer can identify, but a product manager might ignore. I think we've highlighted this uh, point where, whereas in the, where if you come from a technical perspective, it's much more easier for you to do it. But I think when someone who's non-technical has to rely on the developer, the developers within the team. But usually the developers within the team, you would go and consolidate a tech lead if there is, or the CTO, because 
some of the developers that join the company might not be, let's say, five years experienced. So they might give you, let's say, an estimate that is way much lower than what it is. So they might say, okay, this feature might take two days, but it might take, but it actually might take five. Mm-hmm. A CTO might have a more perspective on this. So for someone who's non-technical as a product manager would consolidate a tech lead and or a CTO. Yeah, you know, I I think a lot of what I I said previously kind of applies here where you just need to lean heavier on the people in your team and company that do have those roles. I do think that if you are going to be a product manager on a product that is a software product, it's going to be really, really difficult if you have no technical background. As long as you have some foundational understanding, I think you can get by Obviously, the stronger background you have in it, just going to give you that extra perspective and um, experience to understand what you're working with. And of course, that's going to help. Um, but I think you can get by as long as you have that foundational understanding. Um, if you don't have any technical background, I think it's going to be really difficult and might be better suited for um, a non-software based product that you're managing or, you know, There are tons of resources out there today, just understanding what product you're going to be managing or if you'd like to be managing and the um, technology behind that. Maybe take some courses, some YouTube videos. Uh, YouTube University has just about any video that you can think of to learn whatever skill that you may need. So So I'm going to move to a different question, which is as someone who worked as a software developer for a certain amount of time, which is more than seven years, does it make sense to shift towards product management role in the future? So certain technical people might shift towards product management to keep their technical knowledge in hand, but leverage from a different position, then resolve to not writing that much code, or they might resolve towards being, let's say, as a tech lead. I would give myself, let's say, as an example, if I want to uh let's say i've been in the industry for five years and i want to reach the position that okay i don't want to waste my technical skills on the side i might go towards let's say a technical product management where i would have my skills my technical skills in hand but i also can just manage things at some level what's your thoughts on this yeah that is pretty aligned with actually why i moved from engineering into product so I didn't want to lose my technical skill set, but you know, there I actually sat on the thought of potentially moving into product for probably about a year. You know, it's kind of a scary thing when you've dedicated so much of your life to getting degrees and experience to you know, be an engineer and then to completely decide to pivot and go into a totally different department is a little bit scary, but for some of the reasons that you outlined Um, I thought it was a good move to move into a technical product manager because I do get to still utilize those skill sets of, you know, my tech background. While for me, a big part of it was twofold. Um, I like being able to wear a lot of different hats. Um, I like being able to work with a lot of different departments and people and work on different types of things. And a big part of it also for me is the creative aspect. Uh, In some engineering roles, you do get that creative outlet to have the autonomy to decide um, how things are going to look or behave or the features that go into it. But 
a lot of that does fall on product. So um, at my core, I felt the best type of role for me is somewhere that I can intersect that creativity with my technical background. And I felt like product long-term was much better suited for that. Uh, does every single person, let's say, as a technical person, would I aim towards becoming a technical uh, product or manager at some level? Or would I would just say, this is not for me? Like, like for example, every single person who is in a technical position, let's say, would come up and say, like, okay, I would prefer to manage your role because I don't have to write that much code. But when you see it in your eyes, it might not be like how you predicted it because there's a lot of things that you don't see that are managerial-based, but they're non-technical, but you're forced to do them even though you, you might be using your technical skills at some level. It's definitely going to depend based on the person. So what are you interested in? What do you, what is your end goal at, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, do you love writing code? Do you want to keep writing code forever? Um, for me, I really, you know, getting back to that creative thing, I wanted to be able to work on side projects and I had all these ideas that I wanted to build on the side just for fun. But when you're coding for eight, nine, 10 hours a day, once you get home, you're like, I, I just can't anymore. Like I, can't sit here and stare at the computer anymore. Like the last thing I want to do is sit here and, and code. So being able to still be involved in tech and have the time after work and the energy after work to continue working on side projects, if that's something that interests you, then obviously technical product manager, probably a good fit. Um, there are going to be pros and cons to every job. You're not going to love every single responsibility that comes with the role. So you know, I'd say lay out the things that you're interested in, um, lay out the things that you're not interested in. You're going to have to weigh the pros and cons. I don't think there's going to be any you know, silver bullet that's going to solve it. There are, you know, some aspects of product management, just full transparency that I don't love, but it comes with the job. And I'd say, you know, 90% of what I do, I do love. So it makes that 10% it's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to love everything. That's fine. Um, but if you want to stay technical and you know not have to code every day, product management is a great route to go, but it's not the only route. There are a lot of different routes you can go. Um, and if you want to stay technical, doing it as part of your job isn't your only option. Again, you can go in a completely different route. You can be a recruiter. You could be um, you know, just a, a people manager. Um, and then and have those projects on the side if that's still something that interests you. So a lot of different options. You really need to think about what interests you, what doesn't interest you, and what you want, you know, years and years down the road and figure out what most closely aligns with that and what's going to get you there. Because let's say, for example, if I've decided to get on the product management wagon and start becoming a technical product manager, are there any certifications that the interested individual would consider? Work experience plays a huge role, but getting a certification might help someone who's a junior or might, let's say, for example, been mid-level developer, not, let's say, senior or tech lead level who might shift towards it. So let's say being a certified, uh, let's say, from PMP, as an example, from PMI, or any of those, does this help someone to get into product management? Or it's just for, for people who want to start, it's just a good starting phase? 
I think what you said about if you were more junior, that might be a good role to take. Um, personally, I have a somewhat unpopular opinion. I don't really care much for certifications. Uh, I think they're, you know, it's nice. You Okay, you went through a course, you got a piece of paper, it says you can do this. But to me, when I'm looking at someone's resume, um, it stands out to me. I care a lot more about what they've actually done than the pieces of paper that say they can do something. I want to see what you've actually done. So, you know, that certification might help if you're a more junior. But um, when I was looking into switching, of course, I could have taken some certifications, but I thought it was more important that I actually got the knowledge. So I, you know, watched tons of videos, run, read tons of articles and books and all kinds of stuff, trying to get myself up to speed on more of the product specific aspects of software, uh, as opposed to I potentially could have taken a course, but um, I felt it was more valuable to be able to properly speak about it, improve through the things that I've done in my past that related to product, as opposed to just having a piece of paper show that I've, I can do it. But here's the thing, you've spent almost nine years as a, as a full stack software engineer, then you moved into product. Sure. But when you move into product, you, does it change your perspective of how you look at the software industry or how you look at software in general? Because when you're writing code, it's a lot more different than just managing a project that has to do with code. That is very true. I definitely have a little bit of a bias because I had a somewhat unique experience coming into product. Um, my very first role was much more of that like pure project, software engineer, more of the like behind the scenes stuff. And then I moved into um, a smaller company where I did have, I, I kind of had to learn those skill sets because there weren't product people, there weren't project people. It was a very small group of three of us, actually. It was a three-person IT team when I first joined. And it was like, hey, we have this problem. Hey, customer needs X, Y, Z. And so it was really up to me to understand the problem deeply, go through all the things that product typically does. You know, at the time, I didn't realize that I was doing product-based roles, um, I actually just enjoyed what I was doing. I love being able to hear someone's problem, understand it, figure out how I can help them, you know, design something that I really feel is going to deeply solve their problem and excite, and not just solve it, but excite them. Um, there's nothing better than like handing something off and then being like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. Thank you so much. Um, so I got a lot of those experiences, even though my title was software engineer. I was doing a lot of product-based roles. So I do have a little bit of that, you know, bias there. Um, so I have a, a different perspective than maybe a lot of people coming into product. So, you know, that, it, it is a fair point. If you are coming into product and you don't have a lot of those experiences, then perhaps it is useful for you to get those certifications. Um, again, I'd focus more though on making sure you actually deeply understand what you're going to be doing as opposed to just kind of checking a box and saying, okay, I did this certification. Now I'm, I'm good. I know it. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is when you started your career, you started it at ArcelorMetal, which is a fortune 500 company. And you stayed there for around four years in total. 
would you talk would you like to talk more about your experience there and what is the feeling of working at a fortune 500 level company since it's a large company so starting out might be smoother than someone who's starting out let's say at a startup or a small company where someone inside of let's say ArcelorMittal would come up and say like hey this is a kind of mistake i'll teach you how to do it or they might have let's say certain departments where you can work in where you have certain levels of luxuries would you like to talk more about this yeah that was my first like full-time role out of college uh, i think it was a really good first position for me because like you said um, while i don't know if like a fortune 500 big corporation like that is best suited for me now i definitely think coming out of college it was the right move because they do have all of those processes in place you have more time to ramp up um, it's hard coming straight into a startup because there aren't all those resources and processes in place. So you kind of got to figure things out as you go. Whereas if you're kind of just first coming out of college and it, it is nice to have a little bit more guidance and um, time to ramp up and a little bit more resources to lean on to help you get started. Um, there is definitely pros and cons to that. Uh, so a lot more politics, a lot more, it's a lot slower, a lot more processes, a lot of more boxes you have to check to get things out the door. Um, whereas, you know, you go into a startup or a smaller company, you have a lot more autonomy, a lot more flexibility in what you're doing, and you can move a lot faster and you can do a lot of different things as opposed to being like, I do this one very specific, specific niche job within this giant corporation. So um, personally, I like being able to do all the different things and kind of have my hands everywhere. So I think startups are and smaller companies are more suited for me. But you know, if you like having more of a niche role, um, and more guidance and resources around you and time to do things, then um, that might be a good fit as opposed to going somewhere that, that doesn't have those things. I would consider actually going to a corporate job just for one thing, the security. You, you don't have to worry about anything. It's like, I have a thing where after the age of 30, I have this thing where I have where I say, okay, I'll do whatever I want before the age of 30. Like, I, I don't mind doing, let's say a product, failing at it, doing anything. But at the age of 30, there's this level where it's like, okay, I need to settle. So settling with, let's say, a big corporation would be like, okay, I would just focus on having a family, supporting it, and there's like a stable income, and I don't need to worry about anything ever again. But before my 30s, I would just like do anything I want because there's no kind of judgment on it. You know, yeah, I totally hear that. It's interesting, though. I had something in my head when I got out of college. I was the first one in my family to go to college. So it was kind of beaten into me that you go to college, you go to a big company, you get a job, you find that security, you know, because my parents were so concerned about making sure that I didn't have the same struggles that they did. So I was so focused on like, let me just go to a big company. Let me find that security. Let me make sure I have a 401k and insurance and whatever. So I feel like now I have this more burning desire in me to like, do more of the startup type things because I didn't do them when I probably should have, which is like in college and straight out of college. I took more of the safe, secure route. And while 
it's probably more advantageous for my life to continue that route today as I, you know, definitely already past my thirties. Um, I, I still, you know, you have to find that balance of what is the safe, risky route versus what's actually going to like make you happy and you're going to enjoy every day. So definitely, um, playing a, a balancing act there, but what I what I did actually when I was I entered college when I was seventeen and I used to snuck out of college to go competitions and hackathons, so uh, I I wasn't like I realized like university is just like a piece of paper, like it's just good when you just give it to your parents be like okay you got the certificate <laughs> you can hang it on the wall I'm not gonna use it, and I and I just go and did the thing that I just love doing, but I did work with a couple of startups I did see how things work how. Uh, a startup would pitch to an investor how things would work on small startups. Some startups got, uh, some some of them got bigger, some of them closed. I've seen all of this before I even became at the age of 22. So I've seen all of the cycles. So I got this grasp of how the startup life is. And then you realize like, okay, you need a certain level of stability at, at a certain at a certain level. Like, okay, you can't, work with startups all the time because there's some risk involved in it you need to at least have something to start with but then i realized like at the age of 30 i need to get my stuff together get everything done and just settle down yeah yeah for sure i uh, i definitely wish i took the route i'm going now a little bit earlier maybe flip-flop the way i went about it but we're here and um i i've currently prioritizing doing things that I deeply enjoy as part of my job, as opposed to taking a more safe, secure, just kind of coasting route. But here's the thing, uh, I've got a, a previous guest on the podcast who used to work at Facebook. He said the, the part where trying to do, let's say, for example, certain things, let's say a startup or all of that before your 30s and then go to corporate, he would, he would recommend like go to corporate meet cool people there. And when you leave, you actually have, let's say a certain level of people that you know that you can benefit from, from this corporation that you can benefit from when you want to do your startup versus when you started out on your own, when you went out of college and you're starting on your own, you might have not have that much connections. Whereas when you go to, let's say a big corporation, you have a bigger pool of people to meet. So now you have more connections and those connections can help you later on with let's say building your startup. So my guest actually went to Facebook first. He got the connections that he want. And when he left, he's now working as a CTO in a startup. That, I mean, that's a good point. It's an interesting way to go about it. Um, definitely not a bad option or a bad idea, uh, but it's not the only way to get connections. You know, there's lots of groups and local things that you can be a part of. Um, not even just local, but, you know, internet is a big place. Lots of groups you can join there and get involved and find connections that way. Uh, go to different conferences and meetups and meet people as well. So a lot of different options, but I definitely don't think it's a bad idea. After ArcelorMetal, you moved towards a fintech company called Payrock as a software engineer. Uh, I think Payrock was acquired by a previous, it was acquiring a a company that got acquired by Payrock, am I correct? Exactly, yeah, it was uh, called Retriever and then we got re acquired by Payrock. 
Okay. Would you like to talk more about your experience there and writing code for a fintech? Since fintech, the procedures of working in a fintech company might be different than just working at a regular company, since there's some certain guidelines and things to work with. Yeah, so that was actually the position that I was talking about a little bit ago where I got a I got that experience that was actually, you know, while it was a software engineering title, I was doing literally everything under the sun from hey, we have an idea to you've built it, you've launched it, it's your baby now, you support it, any bugs that come, that's that's your problem. <laughs> so, no, that that was that role just for for context, but yeah, moving into a fintech, definitely uh, a little bit different when writing code because there's there's no room for error in fintech. You're working with money. You cannot have, you know, people get very touchy when you <laughs> play with their money in the wrong way and you get it wrong. So there's um, a lot more stress, in my opinion, when you're working with money, um, but I see it as a fun challenge like you have to demand perfection in what you're doing so um yeah more stressful i was working on a lot of systems i i did our um our residual system i did a uh, we were renting out different uh, equipment and i built the billing system for that and i'm not gonna lie at the end of every month when we had to run that billing cycle and we had to take in uh, calculate residuals it did my blood pressure did go up a little bit every month because as the software engineer and especially as the only software engineer working on it it's like that's that's all on you so if this goes wrong it's on you so pretty stressful but again if you like challenges <laughs> in problem solving it's a it's a good role but gotta play a balancing act because you can uh and I say burn yourself out on that, it, it does get pretty stressful, so. I think the stress would start when the regulators would come in and see what's going on, especially yeah, in contact. It, a little bit, but if you are doing things the right way, like you know what the regulations are up front, you know that you need to be in compliance, so like just don't build things that are gonna go against that. Um, you know, when you're planning out like, oh, we need to put in a new feature. So like I was billing or I was building out like our the billing system for the rentals that we were going to be offering. I was like, okay, I know that we can't store these bank account. Like we need to do things in the right way. So there is like that added stress, but as long as you're planning for it up front, then it's not, not too bad. Like just don't do things that you know are wrong. Or just offset the certain things like say the security to a startup or a company that already does this for a work and just do the things that you have to do and that's it. If, for example, like PCIe compliancy, there's I think companies who handle PCIe compliancy and the data storing on vaults. So you just subscribe to the service, you just do it, gets done. You don't have to worry about anything ever again. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so like, um, you know, like you said, we had uh, external PCI auditors that would come in and then um, not part of the billing system. I actually don't even remember what I was working on, but at some point I had to build something that was like taking in credit card numbers. So instead of just building a form that you enter your credit card and then we like store it on our servers, I built it in a way that I used a third party. Uh, I think I actually used authorized.net 
at the time to integrate and it, at no point did we actually store or t after you entered in your numbers it never we never even seen it we had no idea about it so just building it in a way that like reduces and removes that risk from you so so when you're working at Payrock, you had the opportunity to wear different hats and operate on different sectors within the company. So you were capable of doing system architecture, doing database design, project management, analytics, UI, and all of this. This is doable when you are in a smaller institution where there's a need to have to wear actually different hats. But do you think companies would want to adopt this mindset with the employee to have knowledge about everything, or would they prefer to have, let's say, a specialized person? So you might find companies would hire someone who's just focusing on backend. We just need someone who does just backend. They they might have a reason to do it, but do you think that every single person should be a generalist or would I aim to be a specialist at some level? I definitely don't think every single person should be one or the other. I think it's valuable to have both. Um, so I'm obviously a little bit biased towards generalists because I was full stack and I'm obviously uh, very just naturally curious and want to be a part of everything and have my hands everywhere. Um, so that's definitely like my bias, but I absolutely see the value in having someone that's deeply knowledgeable in one area. Um, Canopy actually does hire like backend engineers and then front end engineers. And I, I see the value in that, but I also do see some limitations when it comes to, um, you know, the way the, the backend engineer builds something, it, the front end has to utilize that. And sometimes those things don't work out well together unless there's that collaboration. Um, so we've actually restructured um, the way we work to be more fitting for that and have teams team-based projects. So the backend and the front end engineers are kind of talking to each other as we're like designing things out and that works a lot better. But it was hard for me going through that because having the background as a full stack, I'm like, this was never a problem for me because I was designing both. And so I'm like, I, you know, as I'm designing the back end, I kind of can picture what my plan is for the front end to make sure that what I'm doing in the back end is going to solve for that problem as well. And not having those things be um, completely separated and not understand the needs of the other. Um, so I see the need for both. I don't think anyone or not everyone should be one or the other. Um, I personally like the T-shaped skill set where you have like deep knowledge in one area, but you also have like the more general broad based knowledge as well. So um, my preference is get deeply knowledgeable in one area and then kind of try and um, build out your skill set. In, in other areas, at least at a general level. But being a generalist sometimes saves decisions because I was working on a product and I was working on the front end part of it. Then there was a, some issues on the back end, so they needed someone to help them on the back end. It's like, hey, I can I can offset some tasks for you. And the back end guy just looked at me like, wait, you can do, you want to do that? I was like, yeah, I can, I will do that for you. Yeah. Like, I already know how to write back end. I've been doing it. And all of a sudden, he's like, I'll, I'll take some tasks off your hand. I'll, I'll just do it. And he's like, okay, just be my guest. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not gonna stop you at all. Just just go do it. So sometimes being a generalist might help to offset some tasks where you say, okay, I've done some tasks on the front end. 
I might take some tasks on the back end to make the team less stress on doing, let's say, certain tasks, but being knowledgeable about one thing and sticking to it. The thing is, is that you don't know what you might want to stick with. So you might say, I want to stick with front-end development, and then you go all the way in, and then you learn it, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a second, I might like back-end much more than front-end now. And then you go deep into the back-end part, and then you realize, oh, wait a second, maybe there's something else that I can do that's that I might like it much more. So specializing, I think it fits when you reach the position like you've been doing it for so many years, you mm-hmm. just call yourself a specialist. Like, for example, those people who proclaim themselves to be Java champions who've been coding Java for more than 10 years, I'll give them the title for it. Just, just I, I'll give them the title. You, if you can bear 10 years writing Java, I'll give you for you. <laughs> but, but being, let's say, a specialist at some level can hurt you in a, in a way that you get stuck with what you have. And that's it. You get stuck on, on a certain plateau. That's definitely so, true because you never know when that thing's going to go away either. So you have more possibilities before you if you're a little bit more general. And that's actually a great point you made about having those having both skill sets. So uh, the team I work on, we have some front end engineers, some back end engineers, and uh, we were working on a project that was very front end heavy. And I didn't know that our um, actually our our team engineering lead. He is a primarily back-end engineer, and that's all I had known about him. And he's like, oh, I can help and jump in with the front end because I didn't know his uh, background. He had done front-end work before, and it was like, oh, thank you. Like, it was a lifesaver because we really needed that extra help. So kind of having that in your back pocket to be able to pull out is always very helpful. So when you were at Payrock, you, you, the role that you were in unveiled your love for product. Being in that role where you can work across functionalities and have several opportunities to create big impact. For this, you decided to do the switch from engineering to product. If you didn't have this role, would you have stayed as a software developer or would you have transitioned to product in a later stage? So assuming the fact, let's say, you've never entered Payrock in the beginning, or if, let's say, you entered Payrock and they say, this is your role, you do, let's say, front-end development, and that's it. Would you ever consider shifting towards product in the future or you would have just stayed as a software developer? It's an interesting question. I obviously can't say with certainty unless I you know, could go back in time and <laughs> relive it. But um, I, I think knowing myself and knowing what I'm most deeply interested in, while I may have stayed in software potentially for a bit longer, I think I eventually would have found my way into product just because it is so much more of a more natural fit for me. Um, I actually kind of laugh, like looking back at, you know, when I was younger, coming out of college, (laughs) it sounds silly now, I honestly did not even know that product management was a job, or I may have kind of tried to go that route earlier on. you know, when I, I don't think I've ever looked at any, I'm so nitpicky and perfectionist when it comes to like different products, not even just software, just everything, everything I look at, I'm like, man, it'd be better if it had this, it'd be really neat if it had this, like that's just more of like a natural product driven type interest and skill set. So I think eventually I would have found my way there it may have been a little bit longer of a path, but um, my natural inclination would have eventually wandered me over this way. 
So I'm going to shift to a different question, which is we're starting to see a lot of people who getting into boot camps where they would enter a boot camp and they would get promised on becoming software developers from people who are from non-technical backgrounds. Those people might lack some technical intuitions to make them write upstream code at some level where they've just learned what they learned from the boot camp and they say, that's it. Uh, some companies might leverage those kind of people who are codenamed as code monkeys since they would just come up and write code. Uh, because they might cost less than just hiring someone who might have an array of skill sets, whereas they would just bring, let's say, five code monkeys to write, let's say, one of them would say, okay, write front-end, write back-end, uh, write, let's say, for example, handle database writing queries and all that, where it just makes things faster because when you have five people, it's just much more faster to do things than just having two people since you can offload certain things to them. As a technical product manager, does these people reflect on the development of the product in a negative way? Since a portion of these people might not have or been coding for a certain amount of time, so they might lack certain skills to fall behind. And when they fall behind at some level, the product might fall behind. So you might compromise of not launching on the time that you have in your mind, or a certain feature might be taken out just so you can reach deadlines. Would you like to talk more about this? Yeah, I actually have quite a few thoughts there. So I think it depends on what you're building. So if you're building, you know, I just need a basic website that, you know, can store a basic table and it's very, very basic functionality, then that might be fine. You know, for something like, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, I work for a computation and system of record for financial lending and credit products, zero room for error. No, that's not going to work out. It's definitely going to have a potential negative impact on the product. Um, and you mentioned, you know, it's could be faster to hire five people as opposed to ha having two. I think that is sometimes a misconception. Like, oh, well, if I just can hire five people that are less expensive than these two people, then we have five people, we can move faster. That doesn't always work out that way, especially if they don't have the deep knowledge and experience. Like there's a reason why those two people are more expensive. Um, and it kind of gets back to like the generalist thing. So if you're looking for someone that could do a bunch of stuff and they're more expensive, there's a reason. And they can actually typically move faster than five people that don't know as much or you know maybe they, they just had if you're looking at like five people that just got out of a boot camp as opposed to two people that are deeply knowledgeable in the industry i have strong conviction that those two people are actually going to move a lot faster and your end product is going to come out better now that doesn't mean that um, those five people that came out of a boot camp are, can't do anything but you need to be aware of what you're putting them on you know, get them ramped up if they have um, deep interest and um, let's say like ceiling cap, you know, so maybe they are just out of the boot camp, but it's clear that they have the interest and they're excited to learn and they're, they're catching on quickly. That does, you know, eventually they can turn into someone that can move um, at the rate of like the more expensive engineers and move up quickly. And I, I think that's valuable to um, invest in, but yeah, right off the bat. Yeah. You're, you may 
feel like you're moving faster initially, that you're going to pay for it in the long run. So you might feel like hiring five people is not going to make the product better. Typically, in my opinion, no. <laughs> but it, if you're building something complex, then no. If you're just building like a, I don't know, a blog or, you know, some basic, uh, you have a restaurant and you want a website for it, then yeah, sure. Hire five people that have gone through a boot camp and those aren't, you know, it's not rocket science to build that type of stuff. So um, give them an opportunity to learn and expand their skill set because I do think one of the problems with those boot camps are similar to um, what we talked about earlier with the certifications. Like it says you can do it on paper, but um, if I were hiring one of those people, uh, the boot camp is like the bare minimum. Um, I think after you get out of the boot camp, it would be in your best interest to do some side projects and actually have things that you can show like, okay, I did the boot camp, but also look, I built this website and I built this thing and I built this extension or this framework or, you know, whatever it is um, to show that you have actual experience and can do what the certificate is telling us that you can do. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is at a certain stage in life, you might find that you hit a certain plateau Certain people might resolve towards changing jobs and others might resolve towards creating their own startup or go on, let's say, for example, create a product or offer consultancy services. So certain people might have towards this because they want to have an adventure while others might just want to stay safe and stay where they are because it's secure and the outcomes are expected. Would you consider this path in the late future? Elaborate on this if you want to consider or not. So similar to how I have this idea of after 30, I would just consider like I already have everything settled down and I just don't do that much risks. And I would do the risks before I was 30. I'm now currently 25, so I have like a five-year window. I can just screw around and do things. And then at the age of 30, it was like, nope, that's it. I've done, I've done my fair share. That's it. I might consider doing a startup later on in my life, but when, when let's say, for example, things are secure enough, but I won't do that risk anymore. Would you consider doing this or not? I, well, short answer, I would absolutely consider doing it. <laughs> um, the The longer answer is I did try and do one startup a few years back. Um, a guy that I worked with at the time reached out to me. Uh, him and two other people were trying to build a startup and um, asked me to get involved and uh, explored that for a couple years, ultimately ended up not working out, but um, was great experience. Uh, just again, my natural inclination, my curiosity, my love for like figuring out people's problems and building things that solve for them. Like I just, that's what my natural interest goes to. And I think it's probably going to go that way for a while. Um, so it's going to be hard for me to not eventually want to do my own startup. I think I've got, I've actually got a note in my phone. It's just like the world's longest list of ideas I've jotted down. Like, oh man, how does this not exist in the world? How does this not exist in the world? Um, and after where it was one of the um, pros to moving into product that I mentioned earlier is now I do have more of that mental space and energy um, outside of my day-to-day -day job to kind of tinker on the side and still code. So I do do that for fun. Um, right now, I would say 
Like if it were up to me, yeah, I would absolutely love to have my own company and startup, but um, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I am, I have passed the 30 mark a while ago. So uh, trying to find that balance of, yeah, I'd really like to do that, but I also need to be cognizant of the risks there and, and do it in a way that um, mitigates for those. So um, if I did end up exploring that, I would definitely need to be very cautious about the path that I took. I can't just at this stage in life just be like, oh, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll just go move back in with my parents. Like, <laughs> that's not so much an option anymore. Although I'm sure my mom would open me, welcome me back in with open arms. That <laughs> would not be my preference. So um, I, I do think do, it'll, sorry, go ahead. But you, but you can do consultancy. Like you've reached a position, like you could say, come up and say like, okay, I can offer consultancy that you don't have to build the product and waste resources, let's say money and hiring people. You just come up and say like, okay, there's a startup that might need, let's say a certain consultancy. I might be able to provide them insights also through product. So you would do a similar role, but you're not, let's say entitled to one company. So you might have the ability to come up and say like, oh, I'm working with, let's say X company. And then after three months, you might work with Y company, which is a different product that might excite you even more. It, it's an interesting thing. Um, I actually haven't thought too much about consultancy just because I think the things that I love, I have a really hard time not being hands-on. Um, so when I actually first joined Canopy and got into product, uh, one of my coworkers reached out to me and they're like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm great. Except for I just, I just feel really spread very thin. And they're like, well, you're volunteer. Like I see, I hear and see you volunteering to do everything. Like, what are you really interested in? And like, focus on that. And I'm like, well, that's the problem is like, I want to be, I have a deep interest in technology. So I'm always trying to help out the engineering team and I have a deep interest in design. So I'm always offering to help there. And I have a deep interest in marketing. So I'm always like, I can't pick, I want to be the one that's hands-on and building it. And that zero to one phase is definitely my favorite. It excites me the most. So, um, like I said, I haven't thought too much about consultancy, maybe, maybe in the future. Um, I don't know if that would fit what my interests are or not perhaps, but I'd need to explore it more. I don't think my, I think I would deeply regret it one day if, you know, I'm looking back on life and I'm 80 years old and I never took that risk of doing my own company eventually. I think I would regret it. Then that kind of lingers in my head all the time. So I think it's not like regret, but it's like, I wish I would just done things differently. It's like, like, how am I going to say this? You you have the chance of doing certain things at certain levels, but when you reach a position at an older age, you might say like, oh, shoot, I would have I would have loved to do this. Like, for example, let's say uh, skydiving. Some people might not do it because they might have fear. And when they do it, they're like, oh, wait a second. Why I didn't do this earlier? This is fun. I think it's just the fear element. It's just like at the current moment and then later on when that fear element just goes away or you're not thinking about it, be like, oh, wait a second, I wish I would have done that. A hundred percent. It's not the regret. It's actually the fear that comes up and consumes you. For sure. that It's definitely the fear today. 
uh, in the future, I think it would be those feelings of regret. And that's a great point. Just anyone listening that's like out of college and like, oh, I, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, but it sounds risky. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Um, I look back and I got my minor in entrepreneurship. And the um, head professor that ran that program was an angel investor. And I'm like, why, why did I not go after that when I had the interest and I had the resources and I had that room for risk? Like I was going to be moving back home with my parents even after college anyway. Like, why would I not go after that? But, um, it, you know, like I said before, it's kind of cemented in my head that you go to college, you get a good job, you find that stability and the security. And um, while that, you know, kind of sticks with me now, I do also try to take the frame of mind and perspective that like, I ended up here for a reason. And I think I'll probably eventually end up on that path. But I'll get there when I get there. And there'll be a reason why I didn't get there until that time. So I would basically just say just live the day as it is. And just don't think about the future. I, I fall into this trap so much. Like I would just sit down and say like, oh, I'm going to think about what I'm going to do in the future. I would plan it out. I would set points and I would say, I want to achieve this and I want to do this. I want to do this. And then you realize like the, let's say for example, you have a, I have a plan, I have a solid plan. And then like one month later, something happens and this entire plan wrecks down. And I think myself that I'm a failure, even though you realize that's just life. It's like yes. you, you don't have you don't have control on certain things, so you have to just accept with the current circumstances. Yeah, so my just... uh, my analytical brain definitely sends me into like 30, 50 years in the future, and I'm like, okay, here's where I want to be, and then I'm going to do this to get there, and then you know, ten years from now, I need to be here and I need to be doing this. And at every point in life that I've ever done that, while I think it's valuable to sit down and have that thought exercise and like give yourself general direction that's never worked out for me. Um, so like my, my favorite story is in high school, it was offered to me to do a um, calculus class, but it interfered with my, all the schedule I already had. So they were offering it at seven 30 in the morning. And they're like, we're going to, the teacher offered to come in, do an early class with the, um, big group of my friends were in the, a lot of the AP classes and they're like, we're going to do this just for you guys so that you can do your AP classes and do calculus. And I was like, there ain't no way, I don't know what I'm going to do in the future, but I know I'm not going to need calculus. So there's no way I'm getting up earlier to go to extra school to do that. And the first class I had in college, my first day, eight o'clock in the morning, calculus. <laughs> I'm like, I've never, every time I say I'm never going to do this, I never want to do that. I know for sure I want to do this. I'm always wrong. So I think it's good to have like general direction of where you want to go, but to also kind of go with the flow. Um, I randomly ordered, I don't remember, I actually don't even remember what I ordered, but you know, sometimes you order stuff and they throw little like cards and whatever in the box. They threw a postcard in there, like a big colorful five by seven postcard. And I have no idea why they put this in there, but on it, it says, I have absolutely no idea what comes next, but I can't wait to find out. And I keep that on my desk now. Like, I love that. Just like, just being open. Like, I don't know where I'm going. Don't know 
what's going to come next, but um, just being excited about the future and let it take you where it takes you. Here's the thing. Here's the problem, because if you let yourself run wild on the, in the fields, you get super lost doing so many things that you burn yourself down. And then yeah. when you generalize on something and say, I want to do this and you do it, and then you realize you sacrificed every single thing in your life to just do this. And then you realize it's not that worth it. And you'd be like, oh, wait, I didn't do everything. So spreading yourself so much on so many things or narrowing down on one thing, there's always going to be this regret. Like, regardless of what you're going to do, you're going to just regret on things. Like, there's this book that I read for Oliver Berkman called 4,000 Weeks. And it's like, mm -hmm. you live up to like 4,000 weeks. If you, if you come up and you say like, okay, these are the nice things to have and these are the important things to have. Like, you, you prioritize them. You say, okay, these are nice things to have and these are important things that I need to do. Just focus on doing the important things rather than just stretching yourself on so many things and just to say, I'm, I'm doing things in my life. For sure. And I think actually the spreading yourself too thin is my biggest problem right now that I have to be cognizant of and try to balance because I do have, I am just by nature, I'm just incredibly curious about everything, literally everything. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I want to go try that. I want to go do this. Um, so I end up making myself spread quite thin. But the way I think about it is, finding a balance between like, it's okay to have all those different interests. Like as long as it's making you happy in the moment, you know, if it doesn't benefit you tomorrow, that's okay. Like it made you happy today. So that's, it's still valuable. Um, but I also take the stance that you should do one thing every day that like you're forcing yourself to do because you know, it's going to make you a little bit better tomorrow. So it's like, you know, I don't want to get up early today and go for a run, but I know tomorrow it's going to make me better. So like kind of building that discipline, but also finding the balance of like, I'm just doing this because it makes me happy. I don't know if this is going to help me in the long run, but it's really interesting and I'm having fun doing it. So it's a, it's a kind of walking a tightrope, but can figure it out as you go along. I always end the podcast with a mental health question. Have you ever faced burnout or imposter syndrome? And if you did, how did you resolve towards it? The reason why I asked this question, there's, I'm going to just say why, is because every single person in the technical field faces imposter syndrome and burnout. Like it's, it's like it's starting to be like the de facto kind of thing. Everybody faces it at some level. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, my answers are going to be any different from anyone else's. Yes, to both. Absolutely. Um, the, I'll start with the, the burnout question. Um, again, I think life in general is just all about balance. So, you know, you're going to have times that you have to go all in, but like being aware of when those times are versus when you're falsifying that thought in your head, like, Oh, I have to be here all the time. Like, do you really have to go to the nth degree all the time? Um, actually when my last company got acquired, I got a new manager when I met with him, um, and also take a step back and you, we mentioned earlier about the hiring five people versus two people that are like more experienced. Uh, when we got acquired, you know, I mentioned we were a very small team and he was like, absolutely amazed at everything that we were doing. He was like, 
how are you guys getting so much done? And it's like, well, we've been here for four years. There's only two engineers. It was me and one other guy. And we were deeply experienced and knowledgeable about the systems that we built. So we just, we honestly just like worked at light speed. And so the new manager, he was like, how are you not burned out? Like, how are you doing all of this? And I'm like, well, hold on. Who said I wasn't burned out? <laughs> like, um, So I was kind of uh, burning both ends of the stick for quite some time. Um, and I'm trying to be more cognizant now of those moments where I'm like, okay, this is really an important and urgent, like truly have to get this done versus like, okay, no, today these things can wait till tomorrow. I'm cutting it off today. I'm going to go find some balance. I'm going to go work out. I'm going to go do whatever relaxes me. Um, so that's how I'm trying to balance it now. I'm probably the wrong person to ask though, because definitely haven't mastered that still figuring it out. Um, and then imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like you said, in the tech field, I feel like most people probably feel that way. And it's interesting because I think it gets women, particularly in tech have been a little bit more vocal about like feeling that, um, within like specifically there's, you know, lots of different women in tech groups. So, um, you always feel kind of nervous to say that like out loud to like a bigger group of people, but like internally in these little groups, everyone's like, yeah, I'm feeling that. And for some reason I had this thought that I'm like, Oh, it's, it's just me. I'm the only one that feels this way. Um, but as I got closer with different coworkers and was talking about it and um, you know, there's not too many women in tech. So most of my coworkers and friends that I got pretty close with were males and eventually it was like, open enough to like tell them like I do not feel smart enough to be here you know like I don't think I can do this and they're like I feel the same way and I'm like what like you feel that way too oh that's crazy so realizing like everyone feels that way and so I'm a big advocate for um, being open about it Uh, by default I'm pretty open and transparent and just uh, tend to be an open book so I feel like the more we're open and share about it, the more everyone's like, okay, like I don't need to feel this way because everyone feels this way. So there is no imposter syndrome. It's just natural. Like I'm not the only one. It's not that you think that other people are watching you, but trust me, every single person is just watching themselves. They're not even watching you at all. Yeah. I kind of learned that the hard way. It's like you're sitting down, you're writing code and you think someone is going to judge you. Trust me, nobody's going to judge you. Not because they don't want to judge you, just because they're judging themselves as well. So probably you're fine. That is the other thing is for a while I was, um, after we got acquired, we got a bunch of new people on our team and just full transparency. I was like, oh my gosh, what if they, they're going to look at our our code base and they're going to be like, this is crap. Why would you write it like that? And it's like, I don't think there is a software engineer in the world engineer in the world that doesn't look back on things they wrote in the past and is like, I don't know why I wrote it that way. That's terrible. I would do it differently today. So like, yeah, okay, judge me, but like show me your old code. Like <laughs> tell me how great it is. Like I'm sure there are things you want to change too. Um and honestly, I actually have come across a few people that are quite judgmental about it. Um that was like, this is, I actually had one of the the last things I did. Um, I was writing, um, 
what was I doing? I was writing like a backend API or I was integrating with something and I did my check-in and I, I asked for a review and I came back the next day and whoever, one of the people that was reviewing it, they had essentially deleted everything I did and just like redid it. And there was a part of me for a minute that was like, you know, had felt that imposter syndrome where I was like, oh, wow. Like I, am I missing something? Like, am I, am I dumb? Like, did I do that so poorly that they felt the need to do that? And then um, after like, you know, the rest of the team got online and we were looking at it and we we're like, I don't know why you did that. Like the way it was, was actually a lot more efficient. Um, so there are going to be some people that judge it, but who's to say they're right? <laughs> you know, just uh, have faith in what you're doing. And as long as you have reason to back it up and I'd say default to transparency, be open about it. Like if you don't know something, say it, it's fine. I, th I think it's like the kind of people who judge you based on the fact of what you did are basically people who did get judged in the past. Mm. And uh, so trying to put yourself in their shoes. So the person who came up and deleted your code probably faced a manager or someone higher than him who did similar thing and he would come up and do this. So not necessarily might be your fault. You might have written something that's good, but it's just within his nature. Uh, there's people who might do certain things just because they might have faced something similar in the past for it, or they might have just like not feeling good about themselves. They don't want to talk about it. So their way of getting behind this is just make someone else's life a little bit less better. And the other person might come up and say like, oh, am I the problem? There's might be a chance that you're not the problem at all. If you just look at it from a third person perspective, much more than just a first person perspective. And that is a great point. I actually had a, a conversation that was very similar to that um, just last week where some folks were getting like a little bit upset or frustrated with other people. Like, why isn't this done? Why are you doing it that way? And I was like, hey, let's think about like what, like exactly why were they doing it that way? Like you're feeling frustrated because you think you know, they did it wrong or, you know, they weren't putting as much urgency on it as you expected. But like, let's take a step back and think about the motivation behind that. Like from their perspective, they certainly weren't doing it to like sabotage the company, you know? So let's try and take a, a moment to understand from their viewpoint why they felt like that was the right way to do it. So like seeking, it, it, it's a fantastic point. Seek to understand before jumping to conclusions and getting upset. And that's sometimes easier said than done. But if you um, constantly try and remind yourself and stay mindful about that, I think it's a lot easier. Um, it's definitely helped me in general in life. It's like, you know, when I was younger, it was much more easy for me to get upset about things. Whereas now I'm like pretty default. I'm pretty chill. <laughs> like, uh, And I think a lot of it comes from like I... I try and see other people's point of view and why they were doing it that way. And when you take that perspective, it's a lot easier to go, oh, okay, well, I kind of get that now. It wasn't out to get me. It wasn't out to attack me. It wasn't for like malicious reasons. They just had a different perspective than me. And, and now I get why. So now we can have that conversation and try and find a resolution that fits both of us. 
But also you think they might be doing also the thing that is wrong, but at the current time that they're thinking of at the moment, they might just take this decision because it's the only decision that they see at the moment. So think about it like it's a very dark road and you have a small flashlight. And then when you reach the end of the road, you might see the back of the road, all of it. But at that time, you only had what the flashlight provided you. So most of the time, they might just see things from that perspective, from that flashlight, and they just see, okay, this is the path. Until you have this like mental clarity later on, you might see like, oh, this is not something, the right thing, or I would have done things different. But most people just don't see the perspective of seeing it from the flashlight at some level. Definitely, definitely. And that's actually uh, kind of to bring all of this back to like the product stuff that we've been talking about. I think that's a big role of product too, is um, I kind of think of like a hub and spoke pattern and product is the hub and all of the spokes, all the different departments around you, marketing and sales and engineering and design, they've all got their, their flashlight on the road and it's product's job to like have the spotlight and bring the other perspectives to one another. So, you know, maybe engineers are like, you know, we should build it this way for X, Y, Z reasons. Um, and it's product's role to really when needed, get in there and be like, well, hey, here, let, let me help you broaden the reason and context around this. Like, why are we doing this? Here's here's a broader um, perspective on the reasoning behind this. And I've had a, a number of times where I've kind of had those conversations and the other person goes, oh, wow, like that really helps to have all that additional context and essentially giving them a quote unquote bigger flashlight to to see more of the road. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. If you liked it, then feel free to watch our previous episodes and feel free to follow us on social media and rate us on your favorite podcast app of choice.